From the Las Vegas Review-Journal studio, welcome to Season 3 of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, presented by Pro Group Management, additional sponsorship provided by the Golden Steer. I'm John Katzlamitis, and I'm back for one final time this season with a quick warning. This podcast contains explicit content such as strong language and depictions of violence, including murder. Please be advised this podcast might not be suitable for all audiences. Of all the stories that have been told about Oscar Goodman, and there are legions, few harken back to his childhood in Philadelphia. Growing up in a tight-knit family with dedicated parents and two devoted younger sisters formed Oscar's relentless work ethic, a passion for fairness, and fueled the ambitions that led him to becoming a high-profile lawyer and mayor of Las Vegas. Oscar was born in 1939 to parents Laura and Alan Goodman. His mother was an accomplished painter and bronze sculptor. His father worked for the Philadelphia District Attorney and often brought young Oscar along to the office. He still remembers the impression that made on him. Before dinner, I would meet my dad who would take uh, public transportation. Uh, he'd take a trolley car and then elevated, which they had back in those days, back from City Hall. And uh, it was a wonderful thing because wherever I went with my father, uh, everybody would say, hello, counselor. Mm -hmm. Good morning, counselor. Good day, mm -hmm. counselor. And he wouldn't take his hat off, but he touched the tip of the hat. And that impressed me. For Everybody wore hats in those days, right? Uh, mm -hmm. He always that wore a hat. That was the salutation. Always wore a hat. And on Sundays, before we went to Sunday school, he would take me to uh, the police station where he was assigned uh, to the arraignments. And everybody treated him with such not only respect, but love. His parents also developed their children's conversational skills and an almost competitive approach to homework. We'd sit down at the dinner table and we'd tell our parents what the story was during the day and they would share with us what they could. And uh, it was terrific. And then after uh, dinner, uh, it was time for our homework. And uh, we went up to our respective rooms. My sisters, I have two sisters, went up and we did our homework. But before we could uh, compose it, where it would be turned in to our teachers, we had to go downstairs to a basement, more of a cellar. Uh, that's where the, the, the coal was stored uh, of, uh, to heat the house. And we had one blackboard there and chalk and erasers. And we would have to write our uh, assignment uh, on, the, on the blackboard. And he would correct it. Wow. And we were not allowed to turn it in until we copied it from the corrections onto our papers, and then he would review them, and then we would be able to take them to school. This sounds like it's a, a, as challenging as school. It's school. Well, it wasn't. It, it was. We knew it was out of love. Mm -hmm. We didn't have a television that we were running to. We didn't have the little computers that we were shortening our thumbs with. Uh, this was. Uh, uh, you did your homework, and then after homework, you listened to the radio, and we had the programs like The Shadow, uh, The Green Hornet. Uh, Joe Paluca, uh, those kind of things. And it was great. The family would sit around and you you used your imagination. Everything wasn't written out for you or spelled for you. And that's the way we were raised. And it was a, a, a wonderful childhood, the best. It, got, it gets no better than that. It sounds to me like you got maybe uh, the your personality traits um, from your mother. Primarily. She says my uh, and the discipline from your father. Maybe no, it, no, they never disciplined me in the sense. I mean, that, the the self discipline, the, the um, idea of uh, it just happened. Precision. Uh, maybe they knew uh, how to guide the ship and uh, uh, move the rudder. So 
I was learning without thinking that I was being taught. But um, Carolyn says that I inherited my mother's artistic bent and, mm -hmm. and perhaps, uh, you know, the drama. Um, <laughs> and uh, she says, very little of my father's brains. <laughs> so I guess that says it all. Well, in the courtroom, you've, you've always been known as somebody who was very uh, passionate and persuasive and had a theatrical flair. Maybe well, that is that through uh, her, do you think? Well, you don't think about it that way, but um, uh, I found out that if you didn't have the jury in your hand, after five minutes, you weren't going to win the case. They had to, they had to root for you because I represented unpopular people and unpopular causes, and I did not go in as a favorite. Uh, but if they, they liked me uh, and they saw how hard I was trying to succeed for uh, for my clients, then they began to pull for me, mm -hmm. and that uh, that was one of my trademarks. I, I think that uh, juries liked me. And while Oscar attended Haverford College, he met someone else who also liked him quite a lot, a student at Bryn Mawr named Carolyn Goldmark. Uh, it was not love at first sight, but we felt it was love at second or third sight, but uh, we courted and uh, she said, if I'm going to marry you, you have to ask my father for, your, for uh, his permission for my hand. I mean, that's real old fashioned. And uh, I said, well, am I supposed to ask for your hand? And she said, I, I can't marry unless he gives you his approval. So I went there and I could just tell Carolyn and her mother, they were in the next room up at the apartment in New York and they're listening to me. And it went sort of like this. I said, Doc, he was a doctor and a very prominent doctor, president of the New York Medical Society and doctor to people like Marilyn Monroe and an OBGYN and had a lot of respect in the medical community and elsewhere. I said, have something I'd like to ask. And he said, what do you want? Because I was, I wasn't poor, but uh, I had the same pair of sneakers for 10 years, <laughs> which I found on the beach of uh, Nantucket <laughs> when I was drawing cartoons one summer. And um, so there were secondhand sneakers. Yeah, secondhand and maybe fifthhand sneakers. And um, I had an old uh, ratty sweatshirt. And, uh, I, I was not the kind of person he envisioned, uh, the, the prince, asking for his daughter's hand. And he said, how are you going to support her? I said, well, I'm not. He said, what do you mean you're not? I, I, I said, I'm going to law school. And she's going to support me through law school. He said, let me tell you something. He says, if you don't support my daughter in the style to which she's become accustomed, I'm going to... Uh, now, on this blog, are we allowed to use words like ass? Go ahead. He said, I'm going to kick your ass from here to 76th Street. They lived on 75th. <laughs> and then this really sealed the, the deal. I looked at him and I said, if you're big enough. So that's how uh, the, the marriage uh, was. Uh, so he, he didn't grant... Uh uh, no, no, I wouldn't not say, this no, it's, what's that old, how? you know, you ask, uh, you don't ask for permission. I learned that. Yes, for forgiveness. forgiveness. Okay. Okay. After getting married, Carolyn and Oscar lived close to the law school Goodman was attending. Realizing he would need to work hard to make a life for himself and his new bride, Oscar's confidence led to his first introduction into the world of law. I said to myself one day, you know, I'm going to try to get a job. Well, nobody got a job who went to an Ivy League school. They studied. Everyone wanted to be number one in the class, be in the law review. 
I had about as much chance of getting on the law review there as I do uh, getting through this uh, interview uh, uh, without finishing my uh, Bombay <laughs> we Sapphire have a, we have a drink. Martinian play, and, uh, gentlemen. <laughs> and uh, uh, the law school was a 34th in Chestnut. And the city hall was at Broad and Chestnut, which was the equivalent of 14th and uh, Chestnut. And I walked because we didn't have a car. I, I walked from the law school down to city hall and went up. I still remember to the third floor and um, went to the DA's office. And I said, could I see uh, Mr. Crumlish? He was the DA. Uh, what, what we'd like to see him about. I, I said, it's a personal matter. Well, Crumlish came out as nice as could be. And he said, what can I do for you, son? I said, you know, I really would like to have a job as a clerk. He says, uh, uh, what are you doing now? I said, I'm at Penn Law. He said, no, you don't. You, you, you'll never get by. You have to study. You can't just have a job. I said, I can have a job. He said, all right, if you can talk him into it, Harlan Specter, mm -hmm. who ultimately became uh, United States Senator, mm -hmm. and uh, as well as other uh, very important officers, just won the first conviction of a Teamster official in the United States. And he may be looking for a clerk because we're elevating him to the head of the appeals division. And if you could be of assistance to him and he wants you, we'll consider it. So I walked down the hall to Arlen and Arlen said, are you crazy? He said, you can't go to an Ivy League school. He went to Yale. He said, you can't go to an Ivy League school and have a job. I said, Mr. Spector, believe me, I can do both. He said, well, I'll give you a chance. I'll pay you a dollar an hour but you'll be working a 40 hour week. Wow. I don't want to hear any excuses. And if you want to try it out, try it out. I said, when do I start? He said, tomorrow. After proving that he could balance both a job and a top college law program, Oscar would soon become involved in a case that would change his life forever. A wealthy widow was killed in Philadelphia and her name was Lula Bell Rothman. Uh, and she had $300,000, which she kept under her mattress. And two fellas from the Midwest killed her and took the 300000 and brought it out to Las Vegas to launder it. Uh -huh. In the old traditional mm -hmm. sense of laundering it, mm -hmm. at the crap tables. And they were arrested here. And uh, Harry Claiborne, uh, the great criminal lawyer from Las Vegas and ultimately one of my clients, Harry uh, got them out on a writ of habeas corpus. And they uh, went to Omaha, where they were arrested once again, this time for the murder uh, of uh, uh, the woman in Philadelphia. They raised the search and seizure issue of what took place here in Las Vegas. And um, Arlen, we tell the story differently. I know what happened. Ar Ar Arlen thinks he, uh, it was funny when he said it. Arlen tells people he sent me out uh, to uh, interview the arresting officers and I never came back and I kept the money. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I went out uh, and uh, it was a cold, dreary night and... Uh, the officers came back to Philadelphia for uh, being interviewed for motion to suppress. And uh, they, we worked about four or five hours together and they, they had the little Chinese food brought into city hall. And at the end they said, what are you doing here? I said, where else is there? I said, you know, Atlantic city, uh, New York. No, I guess no place else. Cause you had to psych yourself up in those days to go from Philadelphia to Atlantic city, which was 60 miles. It took you about a half a year to decide you're going to make the trip. Uh, and then New York was out of the question. It was 90 miles. They said, have you ever thought about coming to Las Vegas? I said, people live there? How many times I've heard that in my uh. career? And they said, oh, it's a great place to live. I said, you're kidding. And he said, no, it's a wonderful place for a young lawyer to start out. 
So I went home that night and woke Carolyn up because she always had to go to sleep. She had to get up to go to work. And I'm coming back from the DA's office and then studying a little bit. Woke her up and said, sweetheart. I said, uh, how would you like to go to the land of milk and honey? She said, Oscar, I love you, but I'm not moving to Israel. <laughs> I said, no, Las Vegas. So we came out here uh, on a junket. Uh, people don't even know what junkets are anymore. It's where the hotels would rent a plane and uh, gamblers would get on it and come out. And they'd be treated as big shots at the hotels. We came out on a junket. She had mononucleosis at the time, and uh, we were staying at the Flamingo. And uh, on Saturday morning of uh, the weekend of the junket, I came downtown and I went to uh, all the lawyers had storefront offices mm -hmm. along 3rd Street and 4th Street. And everybody was working on Saturday uh, morning. And I went in and one after another, I would say to them, if you were a young lawyer, uh, would you stay in Philadelphia where you have a future? Uh, could work for my father. I could work at the DA's office uh, or come to Las Vegas. They said, you got to come to Las Vegas. Uh, and I never heard of anything like that because most people would be pushing competition away and they were saying it's a great place to come. Mm -hmm. So uh, we decided to uh, come to Las Vegas. Um, there's a lot of truth to the fact I think I, I was not uh, the, I did not have the best grades in law school. Um, I think we wrote over a hundred letters and sent them to DA's offices all over the country. I sent a, a letter to the district attorney of Las Vegas. And of course, there is no such animal. Uh, there's the district attorney of Clark County and the city attorney of Las Vegas. It got into the hands of the DA of the county, Ted Marshall. And um, Ted said, you come out for an interview. And only one other place asked me for an interview, and that was Hepner, Oregon. Hepner, Oregon. If you can imagine, Klamath Falls. It, did, did Las Vegas have the reputation at that time of being kind of those uh, Sin City? Did it have that image? Uh, Let me put it this way, John. At, in those days? I can only explain it uh, in these terms. Uh, when uh, my father said to his friends, my son's going to Las Vegas, everybody that he said that to gave him a book, The Greenfelt Jungle. <laughs> uh, this was a book talking about the mob in Las Vegas. They mm -hmm. all said that Las Vegas has to be the worst place in the world. It's a Sin City. How can your son go out there? And my father in his own inimitable fashion, would say, well, my son loves Phoenix. <laughs> he told everybody I went to Phoenix. That's how embarrassed he was. Like, yeah, had how Phoenix has just a little bit more population horrible, than we do even horrible today. Horrible reputation. What, what did your family think of, of this, of your families collectively think of this move? All I know is what Carolyn thought of the move. We got to the top of the hill uh, outside of Boulder City, looked out over the valley when we were driving in here, and there were a couple of twinkling lights down there. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there was a hotel taller than two stories high. This is in August 28th, 1964. And she said, where have you brought me? I, I, I said, to the land of milk and honey. She said, my father was right. I should never marry you. That's how bad it was, okay? Uh, it was a, a lot different than it is today. That's for darn sure. The Goodmans moved to Las Vegas in August 1964 with $87 in their pocket. Carolyn landed a job in advertising and publicity at a hotel on the Strip. Oscar, despite not being a good law student, now finding work as an attorney. It was during the trial for the crime of the century when Oscar was defending Jimmy Chagra that he felt torn between his burgeoning career and family obligations. I lost my dad. Um, 
when I was about to make the argument in the Shagra case down in Texas, and I'll never forgive the judge for not excusing me for a day to fly back to Philadelphia to attend a funeral, but he wouldn't. He said, you're a professional, Mr. Goodman, you can do it. Well, he'll get his someday if he hasn't gotten it already. After the loss of his father in 1979, Oscar lost his mother in 2004. Then he faced the tragic death of his sister, Erica, known to Oscar by her nickname, Ricky, that same year. She was a prominent prima ballerina who was featured in Time Magazine before her sudden passing. What, how do you, I think if I have the research right, your sister was 59 when she died? I don't and think she was that old. Different versions of, of how that happened. One was that she had suffered a heart attack. In other words, she, she had been we, injured in a fall in we her don't know. apartment. We don't know. We don't know. She lived by herself in New York City. She had, and Mr. Max, which was her cat. Uh, she and Mr. Max lived there. Then one day on December the 20th of the, the year that it took place, uh, I believe it was 04, mm -hmm. uh, she... Uh, she passed away and we got a phone call from the police department there. Uh, are we going to come back? And I was in the middle of a trial. And if I couldn't get excused to go to my father's funeral, I know the judge wasn't going to, different judge, of course, excuse me to go there. There's very little that I could do for her. And they buried poor Ricky. And I don't know, uh, she had such success, but I don't know whether she had any happiness. Mobbed up, the fight for Las Vegas will be back after this. Can't get enough of the intrigue, drama, and excitement behind the history of Las Vegas? Live it by dining at the Golden Steer Steakhouse, the oldest steakhouse in Las Vegas and an old haunt of Tony Spilatro's. You know, the guy from the podcast you're listening to. The Golden Steer has been serving up famous and infamous customers since 1958, from mobsters to the Rat Pack, Muhammad Ali to Holly Madison. Enjoy this classic experience in person or try their world-famous best steaks on earth in the comfort of your own home by ordering today at goldensteerlasvegas.com. Was there another path for you and when when you were growing up other than going into law? Oh um, yes. What was what if it weren't that path what uh, else was out there for you? You mean other than uh, selling heroin and that kind of thing? That, yeah, really. I mean, uh, I really know you yeah, had there, there were Broadway couple, musicals there were and stuff like that in your life. No, uh, well like I, that? I, I I you know, I I took uh, uh, all sorts of piano lessons and things like that, but um, I, I wanted to be a rabbi. Okay. And Carolyn said, you'll be the world's worst rabbi. You'll be up there giving a sermon to the congregation. Somebody will be chewing gum on Yom Kippur when you're not supposed to eat, and you start screaming at him. You'd last about two seconds in that job. <laughs> and she says, you'd be a terrible rabbi. I said, okay. Uh, how about a football coach? She said, you can't even play. I said, but the, supposedly the, the coaches don't have to play. Mm -hmm. She says, forget about it. She says, why don't you go to law school? And I said, well, I don't know anything about it because my dad never really talked about his practice. And But I saw that he worked very, very hard. And uh, I wasn't sure that I wanted to work as hard as he did. Uh, I was thinking about being a cartoonist. Uh, I would draw cartoons all the time, mm -hmm. but I wasn't good enough. Just as he had distinguished himself as an attorney, when Oscar Goodman became mayor of Las Vegas, he was determined to make an impact during his tenure. He had three goals, to establish a great culture in Las Vegas, to develop the academic medicine opportunities, and to bring major league sports to the city. It annoys him that the Las Vegas sports boom came after he left office, 
despite many attempts to lure professional sports franchises to the Valley while in office. You say, you've said this before, Oscar, that I failed or that was a failure of the... Of, it was. Of your, it was. How, but how would you, what more could you have done or what could you have done differently to, to initiate? It seemed like this, a lot of this uh, was out of your control. You planted the seed, but it was going to have to evolve outside of Las Vegas right. for the acceptance of Major League Sports. I, how, I, what could I, you have done? How, how did no, you I, fail? I couldn't have done anything more than I did. I mean, the first uh, week that I was on the job as the mayor, uh, we had a, a group from City Hall go back to New York and... Uh, we made presentations to Gary Bettman, who's the mm-hmm. commissioner of the NHL, and he would welcome, he said, an NHL franchise coming to Las Vegas, no problem with the gambling aspect of it, but they didn't have one who uh, wanted to move, And um, but it was a pleasant conversation. Then we went down the street to uh, my uh, good friend, the old curmudgeon, David Stern, the commissioner of the NBA, yep. <laughs> over my dead body, will you ever have an NBA franchise here? And I said, well... You know, uh, before I was elected the mayor, I could have arranged that. uh. (laughs) Within a few years, Las Vegas became the first city in history to have an NBA All-Star game without having a franchise at the time, thanks to Oscar's perseverance. Oscar is especially proud to have played a role in the development of another landmark of the city, the Mob Museum. It's so much fun uh, uh, having been the mayor, uh, coming from a background of uh, representing purported, alleged, reputed mobsters uh, for 35 years and being able to do things that I never even dreamed I would be involved in. And one of the projects, of course, was uh, the Mob Museum. Now, Mm -hmm. uh, that building uh, was where I tried my first federal case. Take us through that. I think I know how this ends. (laughs) It was an old post office and uh, courthouse, uh, the federal courthouse. And um, one of the uh, crimes that the federal government would use in order to obtain a, a positive uh, a record as far as convictions was concerned, was called a dire act. Dire act is uh, just proving that a car was stolen in one state, crossed the state lines, and was found in another state. And usually the person who is behind the wheel was indicted for uh, a violation of the dire act. And uh, they, they made their record uh, uh, so easy to prove it. Uh, no one ever won a dire act case. And uh, one day, uh, I had the opportunity to get involved with a, a case that really was the start of my career as a, a criminal lawyer uh, in the federal system. Uh, Carolyn and myself uh, would go out uh, and we would buy dinner at the Hacienda, a place called the um, Hacienda. What was the Hacienda Steakhouse? Steakhouse. Yeah, it had a name uh, that, that was familiar to me. Uh, but it was a steakhouse there. We'd buy a steak. And then uh, she would sit down and she would play 21. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was the original counter as far as I was concerned. <laughs> Playing uh, single deck, was she? Uh, she? They played single deck set. Okay, yeah. And she uh, uh, she grew up uh, with her parents playing a card game at home called Concentration, where they turned the deck over and then you had to match up uh, the oh, pairs yeah. and the game. numbers. Mm-hmm. And her mind was trained that way. So uh, she would invariably take uh, what was left over from our dinner check as far as the money was concerned and uh, I sit down at the blackjack table and, and would win. And when she'd win, she'd put the money in her purse. And when she'd lose, we'd get up and we'd go home. And we would do this. And I would stand behind her because in those days, Las Vegas was a different kind of place than it is today. Uh, now, uh, you'd look at uh, somebody talking to a dealer who wasn't playing with a scance. Then I was able to stand behind her, talk to the dealers, become friends with them, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the dealers became very friendly with me. And 
Um, I get a phone call from him one day and he says, uh, Oscar, I have a financial problem. Would you be able to help me? I said, I really don't know the much. The dealer has a financial problem. Yes, the dealer has a financial problem. Um, and he th said, I think I need to file a bankruptcy. I said, I've never done it before, but uh, I'm happy to learn. And he came down to my office and my office was over a flower shop at the time. And uh, I uh, had a little uh, bridge table with uh, four little chairs and sat down, took the information out. And um, he uh, paid me $250, including the fee and including the cost that I filed the bankruptcy. He was very happy. I was very happy. Uh, I made a little bit of money and uh, he got his uh, bankruptcy and we remained friends. Well, uh, a phone call came into the uh, uh, the Hacienda pit maybe a couple of months afterwards, and the fellow who uh, was on the phone said, um, who's the best criminal lawyer in Las Vegas? And the dealer said, well, I don't know he does whether he does any criminal work, but Oscar Goodman's a nice guy. <laughs> well, uh, nothing ever changes in Las Vegas. Nobody ever says, I don't know. They always have an answer for a question. And uh, a fellow says, uh, uh, okay, and he calls his friend, he says, they say that this kid, Oscar Goodman, is a, a great criminal lawyer. Uh, shall we hire him? And the uh, uh, the mobster who asked him to get a lawyer for his stepbrother, who was charged with a dire act, said to go and, and, and uh, retain him. So I get a phone call at home, and it's from a very prominent uh, bookmaker uh, in town here. And he says, come over to such and such a location. Well, I never heard anybody talk that way. Uh, I, I got a little scared, so I said, uh, uh, what's this about? He says, we're going to hire you on a case. So being the brave guy that I am, I said to Carolyn, why don't you take a ride with me? You <laughs> brought her with you? Of course, because she could protect me. <laughs> and uh, we went, went over to a very nice home uh, at 15th and St. Louis and knock oh, on the geez. door. The guy uh, comes to the door and he says, here's three dimes. Hands me an envelope. I didn't know what a dime was. So I said, uh, thank you very much. He said, then you better win the case. So uh, I was shaking in my boots and went out to the car and I said, sweetheart, let's drive around the corner. And I opened up uh, the envelope and there were $3,100 bills. And I said, I better win the case because I uh, had never seen that much money at one time uh, in, in my entire life. And uh, I, I became a little concerned because I had never tried a federal case. And then they said it was a dire act. And I knew enough to know that nobody ever wins a dire act. So I was in some real hot water on this one. And the time comes for the trial. And on the trial day, the uh, uh, stepbrother uh, and the brother uh, come up to my office 730 in the morning and they say, are you all set? I said, oh, no, no problem. Uh, you're going to win this, aren't you? I said, you bet. And uh, what am I going to say? No, I'm going to lose it. The whole thing's, I, I had, I had whole no thing's predicated on an exaggeration no at this right, point. Right. I had no choice. I had to win the case, but you couldn't win the case. So I said, but I want to go over to the federal courthouse. I wanted to waive the jury here because deep down inside, I knew I never picked a jury in federal court. Uh, and I wanted to talk to the judge and find out whether I could waive the jury and say it's a legal issue and, uh, you know, uh, plead that he's able to throw it out based on the law itself and without any factual showing in front of a jury. And the clerk is there and uh, she's walking into the courthouse. She said, what can I do for you, Mr. Goodman? I said, I'd like to see the judge about waiving a jury. She said, no, no, he won't see you, but let me ask him. And she comes out five minutes later and she said, I spoke to the judge and he's already summoned the jury in here and uh, you cannot waive the jury. You're going to be trying a jury trial. With that, she turned around and went into the courtroom and I went uh, towards my office and threw up all over. And I can tell you exactly where it is. It's the second step of the federal courthouse building on the right hand side next to the brass rail.
They should have a little plaque there. This is where Oscar parked it. And I went back. To, I know. We, I went back, to, there went back to my that's... office and the client and his brother are there. And they said, everything work out? I said, well, we decided I'm best off with a jury. So uh, we went over and it was uh, St. Valentine's Day of 1967, I believe. I've been practicing law for a year and a day. And uh, we picked the jury. And basically in federal court, the judge does most of the selection. So I really wasn't in a lot of trouble. And had a decent prosecutor. They uh, rarely have them anymore. And he was very, very fair. And I think that uh, I got the best of the trial, but uh, no one ever wins a dire act. And trial uh, lasted only a day. Uh, we headed back to my office while the jury went out to deliberate about a quarter of four. And on the way back, the brother, uh, the mobster brother says to me, um, is it better if there's a quick verdict or uh, whether the jury takes its time? And I said, that's not even close. The longer that they take, the better off we are. And my uh, law office was about a block and a half of the courthouse. We walk in, the phone's ringing. The jury has a verdict. I said, I told you, I told you, the faster they come in, the better off we are. And the guy looks at me like I'm nuts. And we went over there and the jury came back with a not guilty. And uh, it just so happens that the mobster was a close friend of the lawyer uh, for Meyer Lansky. And it was okay. from that relationship I got called on the first wiretap case, which was taking place down in Miami, uh, involving a wiretap at representing a bartender from the Golden Nugget here who was calling the line information down to Miami. And the two fellows who were betting lines, betting lines. You, OK. And the two That's fellows. That's way illegal. Uh, mm. In those days, mm. it was now nothing's a crime. Well, now, but yeah. But, in those mm. days, it was illegal. It was a big deal. And the two fellows that were getting the line down there were using the uh, public phones at the Miami International Airport. Well, that's and smart. the FBI uh, was uh, tapping every conversation that they had. And the FBI agents were in the in, uh, cargo boxes with the little people surveilling and taking pictures of the Miami defendants uh, receiving the line. And uh, they picked it up. Uh, uh, two uh, uh, skycaps picked it up to deliver it uh, in the airport. And the FBI agent said, stop, stop, F FBI. And if you ever wanted to see eyes pop up, it looked like something out of an old fashioned movie. And these guys went running down uh, the airport. Jeez. Oh, and I got hired, um, went down there and was lucky enough to get my clients severed. And we came back here and everybody else was found guilty. Uh, but the lawyer said when my client uh, was no longer there, would I stay and help them with the case? I was a young lawyer, as I said. And I said, boy, it'd be a great learning experience. And I did that. And they were all found guilty, unfortunately. But the word went out because my client was sitting in Las Vegas basking in our wonderful sunlight. Uh, Oscar won the first wiretap case of the country. I had nothing at all to do with a wiretap case or a win or anything, but I got credit for it. And it was from there that every time there was a wiretap case in the United States, the first phone call went out to me. And on December the 12th of 1970, I got a phone call from 19 out of 26 different cities that a simultaneous raid was taking place of bookmakers all over the country whose last names ended in vowels. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, uh, the government, of course, uh, had them as uh, mafia chieftains in each of these cities. And uh, I, won, uh, I won the case by showing that John Mitchell, who was the Attorney General yes. of the United States, mm -hmm. did not authorize the wiretaps but rather it was delegated to somebody who wasn't statutorily responsible for it. And all the cases were, were thrown out. And from that point forward, uh, I was the man. And that's where I became the mob lawyer.
With a family that includes four accomplished children and his wife of more than 60 years, a career that has cemented himself into the history books of Las Vegas as the happiest mayor in the universe, and his time as an attorney that is almost made for Hollywood, Oscar Goodman calls himself a lucky man. But how do others see him? This is Las Vegas author Jack Sheehan. Uh, I'm very fond of Oscar Goodman, and I, I, I'm an admirer. Oscar certainly knew that Anthony Spilatro and um, Joey Cusimano and the other mafia-linked clients of his, he had to know in his heart that they had done some really bad things. But his job as a criminal defense attorney is very simple. Make sure that the government does not have any flaws in their case and that they present evidence that proves to a jury of his peers that a man is or woman is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. That is their mandate. But he, he's, he's a classic criminal defense attorney in that he's super bright, super eloquent, can be funny, can be endearing, can be hard-nosed like a pit bull. When he was defending a client, man, anybody that was accusing his client was the enemy. And his client was the guy that he needed to exonerate. Former special attorney, Stan Hunterton. Oscar will have a very interesting legacy, in part because Oscar's a very interesting person. I never got to know Oscar outside of business, and we were on two different sides of the business. So I, I really can't comment on that. He was a very good lawyer, and there's no taking that away from him. And he was a very good mayor, led to a lot of the things that have gone on, uh, started under his administration, continued under Carolyn's uh, administration. So I, I think it may be an only in Las Vegas story because I don't know of another town where Oscar could have had the early part of his career that he had and then gone on to the civic part of his uh, career. So there's much to be written and talked about uh, for both of them. Former Las Vegas Review-Journal columnist Jane Ann Morrison. Um, you know, let's face it, he's part of a dynasty. Oscar Goodman and Carolyn Goodman, 24 years as a mayor of Las Vegas, that, that gives him a place in history. And the fact that it was based on, you know, him being a mob attorney. I mean, he does have a place in history uh, that can't be denied. So I think that uh, that's just, he's there, he's in the history books. But you have to double check the history books, depending on who's writing them. And former press secretary for Oscar Goodman during his time in office, Eric Papa. He is representative of what old Las Vegas used to be, representative of everything that's good about this city. Of course, we've all heard him say that he did represent some really bad people, uh, but he was defending their constitutional rights. So even though he represented these really bad, evil people, um, it was somebody had to defend them, and, and that's what he did. And as for what Oscar thinks about his long life and legacy, we played a lightning round with him to find out. I give you 
a word and then you give me the sentence or one word immediately what comes to your mind okay so this will i'll open with this las vegas greatest city in the history of the world the mob a figment of somebody's imagination but that's fine if they want to call it the mob they may the mob museum one of the all-time great ideas uh, where we celebrate the history of law enforcement and uh, their efforts to uh, quell uh, the the uh, mob and uh, the mob uh, and their history in trying to overtake um, the streets of uh, uh, of uh, the country. Lucky Luciano. Lucky Luciano. I did not know him personally, but I think he was a hell of an American. I think he stopped uh, 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 World War II single-handedly. Uh, Jimmy Chagra. With me, Jimmy Chagra was aces. Tony Spilatro. With me, there wasn't a nicer guy in the world. I know what everybody says about it, but that's their problem, not mine. Meyer Lansky. I did not know the man uh, personally, but uh, when I asked him for my fee, he sent it quickly. Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. I didn't know uh, Mr. Siegel. I knew people who, uh, who knew him well. And, um, you know, he's a pretty cool guy. Uh, he, uh, he's very handsome. And uh, just don't call him Bugsy. <laughs> the FBI. Look, not every FBI guy is bad. I have a lot of FBI agents who are friends. I have FBI agents who I've represented. But uh, I can't stand it when the FBI does something against uh, the Constitution or against the laws of Nevada and the United States of America. It's intolerable. The Strip. The Strip is an amazing place. I mean, uh, nowhere else in the world is there a place where people can come and uh, engage in every kind of conduct and misconduct that a human being would want. I think it's as cool as it gets. Carolyn Goodman. The most wonderful wife that I ever had. No, I'm kidding. The most wonderful woman in the world. She's no, unless you know my wife, you can't appreciate it. It's hard to talk about her because she's so special. I woke up this morning. I said, sweetheart, I love you so much. I can't believe how cool you are. You're cool. You're neat. Uh, you are so smart and you have the, the guts of a, uh, of, uh, of 10, 10 giants. Bombay Sapphire Martini. I would probably wither away without at least a half a bottle of Bombay Sapphire every single night of my life. Lefty Rosenthal. Lefty was always good to me. I had no problem with him. Uh, I flew around in a private plane. I ate the best meals. Uh, I had the, the finest cases. Uh, I was able to uh, thumb my... Uh, uh, my nose at uh, uh, people uh, who uh, I felt uh, should have their persons uh, thumbed at. And he, he gave me an opportunity to be a good lawyer. Oscar Goodman. He's a cool guy. He's Oscar's. Uh, he's a funny guy. He's a nice guy. He he has a good time every single day. And as I said before, John, early on, I said, uh, carpe diem. I, I, I grab uh, the day. I enjoy it. I mean, I, I don't know anybody who likes life as much as I do. And I, I, I know that there are a lot of these big... Sh See, I'm, I'm going to write another book with you someday. And it's going to uh, talk about big shots. And it's going to be called, There Are No Big Shots. And uh, these guys on the strip who think they're big shots, they're nothing. Mayor. Mayor, to me, um, uh, on my uh, list, uh, it's either number uh, two or three. Number one is my family and my wife, or I should say my wife and my family. 
Number two, I'm not sure what I liked more. I, I know I never had a day that I worked in my life because when I was the mayor, it was all fun. When I represented these alleged mobsters, it was all fun. So uh, I got to tell you, I've had the best of it. Um, how do you, th this will be our last question for the sitting. Um, how do you think the, the mob would fare currently? I wish the mob were here because as my mother used to say, Oscar's clients never hurt anybody. They just killed each other. <laughs> Those were the days, huh? Those were the days. This has been the season three finale of Mobbed Up, a production of the Las Vegas Review Journal in partnership with the Mob Museum. Production staff includes managing editor Anastasia Hendricks, producer Carrie Roper, field and studio production by Larry Muir, sound design and mix by Greg Conway. Special thanks to Oscar's Steakhouse in downtown Las Vegas at the Plaza for hosting us on site. And our guests, Jane Ann Morrison, Jack Sheehan, Eric Papa, and the late Stan Hunterton, who was part of all of our seasons of Mobbed Up. Stan passed away in August 2023 during the time this season was being finalized. We appreciate the time he gave us during all of our seasons and are glad we are able to share his voice and stories with listeners. To learn more about Mobbed Up and to listen to all of the episodes from this season and more, visit lvrj.com backslash podcasts. I'm Las Vegas Review-Journal columnist John Katzalamitis. Thanks for joining us this season on Mobbed Up, the fight for Las Vegas.